I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 87th Texas Legislature. This week, Mind the Gap. More than just about any other state, Texas loves a good superlative. We want to be the best at everything, first at everything. It's our brand, and we want to brag about it loudly. Well, here's a superlative no one should be bragging about. Texas leads the 50 states in both the percentage and the raw number of its citizens without health insurance. In 2019, pre-pandemic, 18.4% of Texans, 5.2 million of us, were uninsured, double the national average. Job losses resulting from the economic downturn of 2020 were estimated to have added another 659,000 to the uninsured rolls by last May, when 29% of non-elderly adult Texans were without coverage. This is not a new problem. We've been lapping the field for years. But after a short period of getting better or less worse, Following the signing of the Affordable Care Act into law, the trend line is heading back in the wrong direction. Healthcare costs in Texas are rising to an alarming degree. That's a matter of simple economics. And while there are dollars available from the federal government as an offset, our dollars in the form of taxes we send to Washington that could find their way back to Texas through Medicaid expansion, we have refused the help. That's a matter of simple politics. Conservative state leaders, statewide electeds and Republicans in the legislature are no fans of tethering themselves to the feds. They do not want to throw worse money after bad as part of a government-run healthcare system they consider to be broken. And they do not want to take a short-term infusion of cash to close the coverage gap, only to be stuck with a bill that would strain our state budget. But what's the alternative? For years, Texas has gotten by with a federal funding agreement that reimburses hospitals for the billions in uncompensated care provided each year to uninsured patients. Texas sought an extension of this so-called 1115 waiver in the last days of the Trump administration and received one for 10 years. But in mid-April, the Biden administration pulled the plug, citing irregularities in the approval process. So we're back to square one at a time of momentous need. My guest has plenty to say about all this. Elena Marks is the president and CEO of the Episcopal Health Foundation and the former director of health policy for the city of Houston. For decades, her work has been about increasing access to care for low-income populations. Medicaid expansion would accomplish that, she insists, and she holds out hope that the ledge with nowhere else to turn will come around to her way of thinking. As she told me when we talked on the morning of Monday, April 26th, day 105 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Groundswell Health, an Austin-based strategic communications firm focused on healthcare, specializing in public policy, media, and marketing. And by Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, proud to support this conversation. 
because public dialogue and civic engagement are important and play a role in improving the health of Texans. So let's go back over what happened this last week. Uh, State Representative Garnett Coleman, who you know well, Democrat from Houston, tried to stick an amendment on the budget that would have funded health care coverage for uninsured Texans. It failed. Every Democrat voted for it. Only one Republican did. That itself was newsworthy because we thought maybe more Republicans would vote for it. It was going to be this big dramatic moment, but it came and went pretty quickly. Not much debate. The Houston Chronicle effectively said this was a fatal blow for Medicaid expansion this session, the last best chance. Do you think that's true or was it just a bump in the road? I'm not sure. Part of the objection that the one Republican House member who spoke made was that something like coverage expansion is a big, complicated thing and that adding it as a a rider or an amendment to the budget was not the best mechanism for doing that. He's right in a way. And there's actually a bill pending that has the majority of House members, including either seven or nine Republicans. It's, it's signed nine. You're, ta- yeah, you're talking about HB 3871. This is Representative Julie Johnson's bill. Correct. Right? Yeah, correct. So there, there is a bill on file uh, with a majority of House members, including the Republicans, uh, signing on to it, which would provide the platform for a full and robust debate in a way that an amendment or rider to the budget just doesn't. Right. I talked to Representative Johnson this weekend, actually, to understand a little bit more about how her bill is similar to or differs from Chairman Coleman's amendment. One big difference is that it has a fiscal trigger. So this is essentially an effort to try to get conservatives who may be concerned about this um, on board. And as she explained it to me, if the government's share of the contribution to this Medicaid expansion effort ever falls below 90%, Texas is out, right? That's one key feature of this. Are you, as somebody who is supportive of Medicaid expansion, okay with that kind of a trap door for the state? Yes. Because you'd rather get some percentage of something rather than 100% of nothing. Exactly. And the cost that the, the t- percent cost to the state. And let's say theoretically it went above that. There are opportunities to raise those funds outside of general revenue. Yeah. Right. So the situation is, as you described it, every Democrat is for this and nine Republicans are for it. So if you do the math, she has enough votes to get it passed on the floor. But first, it has to get to the floor. It has to get out of committee. Right. Exactly. And that's, this is complicated. And we only have some number of weeks left. So we have to see what happens. Of course, Elena, you know, we could always leave the legislature out of this and just take it to the voters. Now, you'd have to get the legislature in it in order to take it to the voters. But you've seen what I've seen over the last few election cycles that a whole bunch of conservative states whose leaders, conservatives, insisted they were not going to do this. But then they put it before the voters and the voters who elected those very same conservative leaders said in some cases overwhelmingly that they wanted Medicaid expansion. You have any doubt in your mind that that's what the voters of Texas would say if asked? That's what all of the polling shows, including polling by very conservative outlets. The vast majority of Texans support coverage expansion. In fact, I looked at your poll in 2020. I think you did a poll, did you not? And it showed we that did. 69% of Texans supported an expansion of Medicaid, including 86% of Democrats 
75% of independents and you know 39% of Republicans, which is obviously not a majority, but getting four in 10 Republicans to agree to Medicaid expansion is not nothing, right? Right. There was a, another poll conducted uh, on behalf of Texas 2036 by Basilis, which is known as a fairly conservative. Now Mike uh, Basilis is every Republican's favorite pollster, right? Or was. Well, one. there you go. Right, so yeah. his his uh, data, which is uh, more recent than ours, showed 64 percent overall approval. And one of the interesting points that their study revealed was that people didn't realize how really um, exclusive the current Medicaid program is. And we're actually, when, when asked about poverty levels and income levels and, and uh, how much subsidies there should be and who should get them, people, including Republicans, overwhelmingly thought that we should raise the bar even higher, that we should have more people in, that the 138% of poverty, which is the Medicaid expansion level, wasn't enough, that we ought to be including people with higher levels of income than that. Yeah, well, this was Julie Johnson's point to me over the weekend. The reason that she was able to get nine Republicans to sign on as co-authors, and she hopes to get more before this is all done. The reason she said she was able to get that done is because she sat down and talked to people about the details of this. And she said, if you actually talk to people about the details of it, their opinions will change. Now, remains to be seen whether that ultimately matters. Elena, Texas is, as we sit here today, one of 12 states that, has, that have not expanded uh, Medicaid. It's Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, Kansas, Wyoming, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. So 12 have not expanded. Why are we in that group? How did we get here? Take us back to the Affordable Care Act passage and give us the kind of quick Cook's tour of the last decade plus, please. Happy to. So the Affordable Care Act passed in March of 2010, and the way it was originally written, Medicaid expansion was mandatory. The, the uh, law provided that people up to 138% of the federal poverty level would go into Medicaid expansion. People between 100 and 400% would go into the ACA marketplace where there are subsidies based on your income. And that was the way that more people were going to get coverage. And in anticipation of Medicaid expansion being mandatory, at the end of 2011, the state and the federal government, so this would have been, I guess, Governor Perry at the time and President Obama, their administrations agreed to a waiver, which is a complicated way of allowing you to do something different and experimental in Medicaid. And what the waiver did was it allowed uh, a big uncompensated care pool for hospitals to offset some of the care, the cost of care for uninsured people, and another pool uh, to do some um, uh, provider programs that would actually build the capacity of our safety net system and our healthcare delivery system to be ready for all of these newly insured people because Medicaid expansion and the ACA marketplace were going to hit in 2014. None of that was ever intended to be permanent. It was just a bridge to get you to the new expanded uh, coverage. Right. Then we, we get to 2012, the Supreme Supreme Court uh, rules on the Affordable Care Act, and it upholds the entire law, except it says that Medicaid expansion is not mandatory, that it's optional for the states. So 
all of a sudden <laughs> that changed what was anticipated when the ACA was passed and with and when Texas negotiated its waiver. Uh, so we go into the 2013 legislative session. There's some movement at the beginning to do a Medicaid expansion uh, that gets shut down immediately. So we go through 2013. 13, 2015, and 2017 sessions, and there's no action on coverage expansion. We right. don't expand Medicaid. Even though uh, the number of people in the state who don't have health insurance is at the absolute height of this country, right? We're number one. Yes, we have the, so the, the health care costs in this country, uh, in this state, pardon me, are going up and up and up. Even though all of that is happening, we do nothing. We do not expand coverage. That's correct. Right. Uh, in 2016, so as Obama is about to leave office, he grants an extension of this waiver, these two big pots of money through the end of 2017. So he is setting it up so that his successor can decide what are you going to do with Texas? Um, at the end of 2017, when Trump is president, they give another extension of the waiver, but they do two different things. For the uncompensated care pool, the pot of money that mostly goes to hospitals, uh, they say, you can have this through September of 2022. So it's a five-year extension. For that part of it. For, that for part. the other part, which is called DSRIP, which is the um, program that allowed a lot of community-based care to develop, a lot of mental health services, a lot of really innovative non-hospital-based programming that actually built capacity so that people who were low-income and uninsured had places to go for coverage. Yeah. But they said for DISRIP, you can have that until September of 21, only four years. DISRIP was never meant to be a permanent program. Trump right. is telling them this again. And again, giving, this, is, this is a Band-Aid, right? This is a stopgap in the absence of an expansion of Medicaid. And by the way, in the absence of Texas providing an alternative, right? Well, we, we heard for all these years, Elena, we don't want to do what the federal government wants us to do. We want the Texas way, that was even a phrase that was popular at one point during this discussion, but nobody ever told us what the Texas way was. Right. No one ever said, well, here's the Texas plan. And, and during all of this time, we were watching a lot of other states led by Republicans right. do their own plans. Pretty, so conser they do pretty conservative states with pretty conservative leaders. Uh, Mike Pence was the governor of Indiana when they did an Indiana plan that has so many of the features that Texas conservatives say they like, but we never said, okay, we'll take one of those, please. Yeah, whatever happened to that guy? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, seriously, you know, Elena, this is, this is a concern that I've had over the years in talking to people who opposed Medicaid expansion. You've told us what you're against. Tell us what you're for. I would have imagined with all the discussion of not wanting to expand Medicaid, that somebody in office would have had a plan somewhere in a desk drawer so that when the time came to say, tell us what you're for, they would open up the desk drawer and hand us this plan. But there is, as far as I can tell, no plan other than to say no to Medicaid expansion. Correct. I mean, there, there are little nibbles around the edges and yes. actually uh, some of the bills that, that look like they're going to pass this time are examples of nibbling around the edges. For example, expanding Medicaid coverage for women postpartum for 12 months as opposed to two months. Right. Which, by the way, is something that there seems to be broad agreement on, at least on the House side. Right. This time. Yes. Right. Yes. So take us. So, so bring us forward. So so we hit the end of last year knowing that that 1115 waiver, that's the waiver you're referring to, is mm -hmm. is in need of extension. 
and what happens? Well, so here's what we know. Late last year, we know that we've only got one more year on DISRIP. That's the part that pays a lot of mental health costs and other community-based services. And we've got two years left on the uh, big uncompensated care pool. And in October of 2020, uh, Texas actually asked Trump for a one-year extension on DISRIP so that it would go through 22 instead of 21. It wasn't granted. Then we have the election on November 3rd. Uh, Trump loses. And on November 30th, Texas applies for a waiver regarding the uncompensated care pool, which still has almost two years until its expiration date. And it claims that this is an emergency and they do not have time to go through the public notice and comment periods because they need an urgent ruling. Even though they have Uh, two years left, would you ordinarily apply for something as an extension uh, two years out? Probably not. They yeah. certainly didn't do that for the other one when it was two years out. They waited until it was a year out. Yeah. So, so you and others have, have intimated that you think there's some games playing going on here, that the Abbott administration or that the state, rather than putting this on the governor specifically, <clears throat> that the state imagined that they would get a better deal from Trump than Biden. So better to uh, expedite the request for an extension. Exactly. And the only way to do that was to... Uh, ask for it under a fast track provision, which uncompensated care pools aren't subject to in the first place. And it, the worst part about the public, the, the, the um, fast track is that it doesn't allow for public comment. Right. And so it's really important for a program like Medicaid that covers four plus million Texans. People, right, yeah. 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 That there be some public comment. Right. And without that, they went on and filed uh, the application for an extension. Now, they did hold some hearings uh, a week or so later, but it had already been filed by then. Right. So the so the extension is granted. It's a, a 10 year extension that's granted. And then you roll forward several months and the Biden administration in the last just a couple of weeks pulls back that and says, actually, you violated the requirement that you have an adequate public comment period. There's an administrative ding here. So we're, we're pulling that waiver that we had been, um, that Texas had been given by the Trump administration, right? Yes. And it should not have been a bit of a surprise to Texas. Right. The um, state advocates wrote to CMS in December saying yep. we need public notice. National advocates did in early January. Right. Uh, in uh, Biden's first week in office, he issued an ex- executive order that basically said uh, we're going to be looking at all of these waivers that uh, Trump did at the last minute. And in early February, they sent a direct notice to the state saying, uh, hello, your your waiver and your Healthy Texas Women program are subject to this review. So this should not have been a surprise. And all the advocates asked for and all Biden has done in this revocation is say, go through the open public process. Use the transparency. You've got the time to do that. So you don't Use have a problem. Tra- you, you and the other advocates don't have a problem with the waiver. You just want it done properly. Exactly. We need an uncompensated care pool. Uh, they, the, Medicaid expansion and an uncompensated care pool and the waiver and disrip are not mutually exclusive. In fact, it's not either or, it's both and. See, this is something exactly. that was brought up to me. A friend over the weekend 
who works in healthcare and supports Medicaid expansion, had this spin on the whole conversation. Advocates lobbied the Biden administration to pull the waiver. They were too clever by half. They thought that they would force the state's hand and that the result of that, if the Biden administration pulled the waiver, would be uh, a need to expand Medicaid, but they misread the politics. Medicaid expansion is not gonna happen. Now we have no waiver, we'll have no Medicaid expansion, billions of dollars in costs not covered. We're all left holding the bag. This friend said the advocates who, again, I agree with, screwed things up even worse than they were before. He texted me, people are pissed. And the word pissed was all in capital letters. So, you know, he was serious. What do you think about that argument? Uh, I disagree. Um, I think that there is time for public comment. There was time when they filed it. Yeah. And that if they were really confident that this was a legitimate application, then they would have been willing to withstand the public comment period and have the Biden administration uh, respond because the timeline would have pushed it into Biden territory. So, again, if the public comment period, you know, they kind of do this again, take, you know, get a mulligan, make an effort to get this waiver extended again through the proper door with the public comment period, you're good with that. You're good with the extension, but you want the extension and you want expansion. It's not either or, it's both end. Yes, that's correct. Right. And here's the problem with the extension, quote unquote, buying off the hospital. So if your your friend is someone affiliated with hospitals, um, their enthusiasm for Medicaid expansion uh, waned, shall we say, uh, once this waiver came out, it's not because that the, they way, were the waiver provided them the waiver provided them what they would need or what they would want. Maybe the the momentum for Medicaid expansion in the minds of anybody associated with hospitals might have diminished. Exactly, and and here's the really bad thing about using a big pot of uncompensated care dollars. It's that all it does is reimburse hospitals when people get sick enough who are uninsured to get in through the emergency room and then get admitted to the hospital. It doesn't do anything to actually give people coverage, give them a way to go to doctors, give them a way to get medicines, give them a way to manage chronic diseases, mental and physical and behavioral yeah. health. It yeah. does none of that. It waits until people are really sick and really expensive, and then it bails hospital systems out. That's no way to run a health system. All right, so let's, so let's talk about the Medicaid program today, and then I want to talk about some of the objections to it and then get into some of the details. So uh, you said it's 4.3 million, roughly, current enrollees in Texas in the program, correct? Yes. And it provides them with what? Very comprehensive coverage. Uh, it, it, uh, as good as any employer-sponsored plan. Yeah, and who are those people? Who are the 4.3 million? I saw a statistic last night that I thought was so interesting. 73% of those are children? They're is that kids. right? Yeah. Yeah. Primarily yeah. poor kids. Most of them, from like, I don't know, three of the four point something million uh, are kids and they're healthy kids. And it's good that they're covered. We want them to get their checkups, get their immunizations. We, we, yeah. you know, we want to monitor their health. Um, there is another big chunk uh, who are pregnant women. They only get covered once they are pregnant. And right now they are kicked off of Medicaid uh, two months after, after a couple months. And pregnant. as you say, there's an effort now to see if they can extend that postpartum. Exactly. Who, uh, who else? So it's, it's pregnant it, women for a period of time. It's the kids. Who, who are the other big chunks and who's not in it? The, the other big chunk are elderly 
chronically and disabled people. A lot of the money, if you looked at where the Medicaid payments go, Mm -hmm. most of them go to this small slice of very sick and elderly people who live in nursing homes and require very high levels of care. Right. But but healthy adults like, you know, you and me. Healthy healthy adults are not in Medicaid. There's a small exception for very poor parents. Right. But outside of the very poor parents, and I mean very poor parents, right. uh, making like $3,000 a year, outside of very poor parents, adults are just not covered. And if you are making uh, up to 138% of the poverty level, which is not very much, it's uh, for a single person, it's under 18,000 a year. For a family of four, it's under 37,000 a year. Um, If you are in that category, you can't afford health insurance. You just can't. And there's not an option for you other than Medicaid expansion. And we know Medicaid expansion is cost-effective for the state and improves health outcomes for Medicaid beneficiaries. Medicaid is a wildly popular program. Yeah, and and if we expand, as I understand the math on this, if we expand 1.27 million Texans, it's estimated would be eligible for coverage. Correct. And who are those people? Who are the people who would fall into that category? They are largely the working poor. They are people who work in restaurants and grocery stores and construction in all sorts of businesses that simply don't provide uh, health coverage or they provide it at a price point that's too expensive for the employees to to partake. So top line, we would be on the hook. Again, correct my math if this is not right. I think this math is right. We would be on the hook for $600 million in order to get back $5.4 billion from the feds. Um, yes, that's about right. It's about right. And then we get back and and over what time frame? So that's 600 million to get back 5.4 billion. That's a year. The 5.4 billion federal dollars is every year, every year. So I I was going to ask you, are there other economic benefits to us other than simply getting that back? But Ray Perryman, the economist has already told us what this is In in December. He wrote, If Texas implements a program to access federal matching funds for health insurance expansion in 2021, the estimate is that the economic effects for the 2022-23 biennium, so the next budget cycle, would be $45.3 billion in gross product, $29.4 billion in personal income, and 461,700 job years of employment over the biennium. Net total dynamic fiscal benefits during the biennium would be 2.5 billion to the state, nearly 2 billion to local government entities across Texas. I mean, in some ways these numbers are just, you know, you go gray hearing those numbers, just accept the fact that there are direct and indirect benefits if this expansion were to occur, state would, be ben- would benefit in all kinds of ways, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, so you know the arguments. There, there have basically been three arguments uh, 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 against Medicaid expansion. The first is that the system is broken that it's not working for the people currently on it, why would you put more people in a broken system? What do you say about that? You've heard this, of course, before. You've heard all these arguments. I've, I've heard this before. Uh, Medicaid is a wildly popular program, and it touches so many people's lives. When we do polling on Medicaid, not Medicaid expansion, just do you know about Medicaid? What do you think about Medicaid? People like Medicaid. Many, many ordinary t- Texans 
are using Medicaid to pay for their aging parents in nursing homes. Yeah, but Medicaid is not the popular. same as functional, Elena. You know that. The argument is not that it isn't popular. The argument that it isn't functional. Well, it is functional. I, I, I mean, when people say it's not functional, I'd like to see what they mean. Now, if, if you've got an example of a bad actor, be it a health plan, a provider, the right. state, people make mistakes from time to time. And there are bad actors and there are things that that shouldn't happen. But by and large, it is a very effective system for getting people into care. You also sometimes hear the argument that, uh, well, not enough providers are in the Medicaid plan that providers don't want to take Medicaid. Well, the state requires a certain uh, ratio of providers per geography. And so there are providers. All of those plans meet that criteria. Also, you'll hear providers say, well, Medicaid doesn't pay very much. uh, And so we want better payers. The state controls how much Medicaid well, I, pays. I, so I want to, I want to, I want to, I was asked about that at the end, but let's just go there right now. I mean, this is, this is the challenge that you, that you have as somebody who supports Medicaid expansion is, is, you know, Medicaid reimbursement rates are part of the problem. I, I, I think it's something like only four in 10 doctors in Texas today, maybe the numbers are, are updated and are different, except new Medicaid patients. And I believe our reimbursement rates are not only below, but well below on average, that, that of the other states. And as you correctly point out, that is something that the legislature has its hands on. They can change the reimbursement rates to make them more favorable to in turn get more doctors to take patients, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and you know, the Julie Johnson bill, HB 3871 has pay parity in it. That's another feature of it. Yes. As I understand but, it. So it would, it would align the Medicaid and the Medicare reimbursement rates, which would be more favorable in terms of getting more doctors to, as I understand it. Yes, that's correct. To take take patients. Okay. Um, So let me go back and ask about another knock. So the one knock on this is it's a broken system. The second is that we're going to somehow be stuck with the check that the the federal government will give us all this money. We'll commit to the piece that we commit to, and then they're going to turn the tap off and we're suddenly going to be left holding the bag for all these people. Now, again, the Julie Johnson bill, which is still to come up, says if the government's contribution goes below 90%, the whole thing is out. And I said to her, does that mean that you're going to throw all the people who came on to coverage off coverage? And she just said, yes. Yes. You want to be that you want to be that guy, Elena? Uh, I don't want to be that guy, but I'd rather get people coverage while we can. Uh, And to the point of the feds are going to revoke it. Yeah. First of all, we're many years into it hadn't happened. Some states, including Indiana, have re-upped for more of this. And it's just not a realistic argument. And and one political argument I've heard some people make is the number of people who are covered through Medicaid expansion uh, represent three quarters of senators or or three quarters of senators represent people who uh, are, are part of Medicaid expansion coverage. And so they're not going to let that happen. Oh, Elena, you're so optimistic and sunny. I'm, I'm so much more cynical. Um, all right. And then here, look, the third, the third argument is one you alluded to earlier, and it's actually something that a lot of reasonable people have said over time. And I'm always scratching my head at this. And that is we don't need Medicaid expansion because there's already a safety net. If you're sick and you don't have coverage, go to the emergency room. You won't be turned away. But of course, that's inefficient and expensive, and those ca- costs get passed along to all of us, don't they? 
They do. They get passed along in uh, increased taxes. They get passed along in increased insurance premiums when uh, providers are trying to make up the cost yeah. somewhere else. And, and it occurs to me that the same people who oppose Medicaid expansion also hate property tax increases. And it seems to me if you want to limit the degree to which property taxes go up, you might fix health care because the uncompensated care costs end up driving up property tax costs, don't they? Well, property taxes, particularly in the larger counties, yeah. uh, are paying a lot of money. In Harris County, it'll be something close to $800 million this year. Right, which you, uh, know. That you, know, that, you, know, that, you know that community very well. You worked on this issue there, so you know that that's the, that that's the case. Um, let me ask you about a couple of aspects of this. So Texas not only leads the nation in uninsured residents and uninsured adults, we're also, no great superlative here, first in uninsured children. Last numbers yes. I saw had us at 12.7% of our kids without insurance, which is more than double the national average, I think is 5.7%. That, 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 I mean, who's for that? Who could be for that? <laughs> Uh, it shouldn't be anybody for that. Uh, one of the things that uh, one of the bills that's pending and it looks like it's getting traction uh, in the House is one that will address that partially. Right now, the administrative process, once you're well, it can be difficult to get on Medicaid. But once a kid is on Medicaid, yeah. what Texas has been doing is at six months, rather than allowing them 12 months of eligibility, they make the, the parents file paperwork every month to continue to demonstrate eligibility. Yeah. And people fall through the cracks and tens of thousands of kids get bumped off every month. Right. And they don't even necessarily know they've been bumped off. And the next time they find out, they try to go to a doctor and say, oh, you're uninsured. And you start the process all yeah. over again. So that's part of the problem is that we don't make it easy to get on and we make it too easy to get off of get Medicaid for kids. I want to understand what the implications of this are, the effects of it are. So in 2019, the two counties in the United States, in the whole country, with the highest number of uninsured children, were Harris and Dallas counties. D Dallas is actually slightly worse than Harris on a percentage basis. You dealt with this problem firsthand in your old job. What is the effect of having that many kids with no coverage? Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> unhealthy kids. Uh, who miss school, parents who miss work to take care of sick kids but can't get them seen at the doctor. Uh, the kids end up in the emergency room. I mean, we are fortunate that we have uh, a lot of uh, safety net clinics in Harris County that see children, but they can only see so many people who don't have any means of payment. We do have, compared to some other parts of the country, a larger percentage of our population, including kids, who are not documented. And if you're not documented, you can't get on Medicaid. And that's a federal rule from ages ago. It's not anything the state can, can do anything about. Um, and so you already have a percentage of the population of all ages who is not going to be eligible for yeah. these benefits that come with the ACA. But again, you, you point out that, that sick kids ultimately produce all kinds of negative outcomes in every other issue area, right? In yes. some ways, it's like bad input on the front end, and then all the outputs on the various ends along the way are worse as a result of that, right? Exactly. Yeah. And they're kids. My gosh, they're our I mean, future. Leaving aside everything else, they're kids. Exactly. So, so that's an interesting aspect of this. Let me talk to you about demographics. 
population of the state is becoming more Latino, as you know, and yet the Latino areas of the state are disproportionately uninsured. The, the last numbers I've, Hidalgo County, 32% uninsured. Cameron County, 30% uninsured. Star County, 30% uninsured. Webb County, 30% uninsured. The Latino children's uninsured rate in Texas is 17.5%. Again, population of uninsured children in the main is 12.7%. Nationally, it's 5.7%. So the Latino children's uninsured rate in Texas is three times the national average. And then overall, 29% of Hispanic Texans are without health insurance. So don't the demographics of this state almost demand that we do something about this? Just you, you can't do anything about the direction that the population is heading. And yet we have an enormous hole created here by, by this. I completely agree. I mean, we're not headed in the right direction. And, and I would actually point you to the work of Texas 2036, which, which is premised on the idea that the Texas of the future is going to be very different from the Texas of the past right. Right. because of demographic changes. And if we don't get our heads around that and plan for the actual future population, we're going to be in a world of hurt. And you've just summarized some great data that shows where this is headed if we don't start doing something about it. And again, it's not as if every single uh, group along racial or ethnic lines is in the same boat. It's 29% of Hispanic Texans without health insurance, 16% of black Texans, 13% of white Texans. So the problem is significantly in the area of the population group that is about to be the majority or will soon be the majority. Right. Yes. And so and so ignoring that's a problem. Let me ask you about poverty. You've talked about poverty a couple of times. Um, 60 percent of people in Texas without insurance coverage are families that make thirty five thousand dollars or less. Four percent of the uninsured are in families that make one hundred thousand or more per year. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Right. I mean, that's no, th this is entirely the case. Is, is this only about employment? You know, one of the things that we saw over the course of the last year is that we had terrible unemployment numbers. And then uh, the, correspondingly, the uninsured numbers spiked because we still are in a country in which for a lot of people, insurance is tied to work. And so we lose a lot of people from the employment roles. We add a lot of people to the uninsured roles, right? That's like a logical thing, right? right? So of and course, for one job be, loss, you can lose the whole family's coverage. Lose the whole family. So it's not entirely surprising that poverty is a direct through line to this question. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and also education. Um, just under half of Texans without a high school diploma are uninsured versus only 10 percent of college graduates. So I guess like everything else, there's a tie to education. There's a tie to poverty. There's a tie to race. Right. These correlations make sense. It's not as if we don't know. Right. And we've known for a long time and it's not going to change unless we do something about it. We need to do something different. And while Medicaid expansion is not the panacea for all that ails Texas, yeah. it is the single biggest thing we can do to reduce the uninsured rate. Right. And honestly, I mean, I go back to this education correlation, Elena. It makes me think that if we can just get more kids educated, then maybe we can get more kids to a place where they're not in this position or more folk, more people, kids who then become adults, who become the future citizens and future leaders of this, uh, of, of this state, right? Yeah, it's true. But one of the reasons that you will find children's advocacy groups 
advocating for Medicaid expansion is because children don't live in a vacuum. They live with adults. And when their adults are not covered and when their adults are sick, it impacts the entire family. Yeah, yeah. How about geography as a correlation? I, I, I talked to some rural uh, healthcare people over the last couple of days about this. And, you know, generally speaking, I think rural folks are for Medicaid expansion in part because the people who live in those communities tend to benefit from it, tend to need it. Um, uh, I want to understand from your perspective, it, are rural providers in rural communities likelier to be in need as you see it for this? How, how, do, how do you make that geographic connection. I, mean, I tend to well, think of the problem of the uninsured as being more of an urban issue, but, but talk, talk a little bit about geography, rural versus urban. No, it's, it's, it's a rural issue as well. In sheer numbers, you end up talking urban because the numbers are just so great because of the density. Correct. But the people who are uninsured in rural areas um, are, are kind of at a double whammy because there aren't the same number of healthcare assets yep. in rural communities anyway. Right. Uh, w- which makes economic sense. I mean, you can't build a big practice if there aren't enough people. And so there, there's sort of, a, it's, the, it's the same with, with other opportunities in rural areas. If right. you are living in a place that's sparsely populated, the economic opportunities and the healthcare opportunities, the cultural opportunities just aren't going to be as many. It's just not as large a community. Right, but uh, the, we, differ- the difference is, though, that even though rural populations are, as a percentage of the overall population, down from previous years, there are still rural schools, right? We've had more rural providers, hospitals, close in the last 10 years in Texas than in the rural communities of any other state in the country. It's another bad superlative. And so just the total lack of providers is another problem separate apart from, but related to also in some ways, the issue of lack of coverage. Yes, and it's a little more nuanced than that. Some of the rural hospitals reflect a point in time when uh, hospitals were the center of the healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, and I guess in a lot of ways they still are. Still are right. And so what we saw over time was that people who needed hospitalization, who lived in rural areas, were often going to relatively nearby urban areas. And so their own censuses were falling off. And this didn't always have something to do with reimbursements. It had to do with the demand. And uh, Dr. Nancy Dickey at A&M has done some really great work on why are rural hospitals closing? And many times the answer is because the community isn't supporting them, not because they're not getting enough reimbursements. That being said, rural hospitals are the hospitals most likely to benefit uh, as a percentage of their their revenues from a Medicaid expansion. So, so would Medicaid expansion save rural health care or fix the rural health care crisis, do you think? It would help it a lot. It wouldn't fix it. It wouldn't solve the problem entirely. No, right. because it, the, the problem is not just caused by people yeah. being uninsured. Is this provider problem more than just a rural problem? I mean, I've often heard that if we insured every single Texan who did not have coverage tomorrow, we would not have enough places for them to be treated or docs to treat them. That we have an access to care problem as well as an access to coverage problem. Is that true? We do, and they're related. Um, one of the, if you, if you recall when Texas undertook tort reform in, 
when was that? The early 2000s. It was in the Perry years for sure. Yeah, it, it was a while ago. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the uh, arguments in favor of limiting right. medical malpractice claims was more doctors will come to Texas. Right. It turns out that's not true. Doctors go where they can get paid. I mean, you have to make a living. It's not because they're, you know, these horrible, greedy people. They need to make a living. And if you go to a community or a state where most people don't have a means to pay, you know, there's only so much money to go around. Yeah. So uh, let, let's wrap up here. What, what happens if, uh, if we do nothing? Elena, what happens if we get through this session? Maybe the waiver gets extended because we reapply and we do it right. Maybe we don't get it extended. But in any case, the legislature, and I have to think that this is the greater likelihood. Um, uh, what happens if we, if we don't expand Medicaid? Well, we uh, stay where we are at the top of the pack in percentage and number of uninsured. We continue to need more and more uncompensated care dollars because we have more and more people who are uh, not able to pay for their care. And we continue spiraling uh, downward. And as you pointed out, the growth in our population are the people who would benefit most from Medicaid expansion. So that's who we're, we're penalizing. You know, the cost of health coverage, Elena, in Texas is higher than the national average. This is nobody's surprise. It's risen by more than 4% per year since 2010. If we don't expand Medicaid, there's nothing that's going to reverse. I mean, maybe nothing reverses that trend line anyway, but, but, but the problem of healthcare becoming a greater and greater percentage of the overall budget and pushing out the opportunity to spend money on other things, that, that certainly does not stop in the absence of some move to expand Medicaid or find dollars to offset, right? Well, not to get too far into the weeds, um, about 20% of the state's healthcare budget is really off budget. It is paid for through these convoluted mechanisms that basically rely on um, local government and local hospitals to um, provide the funds that draw down federal funds. So we're already <laughs> supplementing the state's budget. Uh, yeah. The idea that, you know, Medicaid is a broken program and it's crowding out other state resources and, and Medicaid expansion will make it worse has been refuted. There are studies out that show the impact on the state budgets for states that did expand Medicaid. And it's not like they had to shut down their public schools. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, Elena Marks, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Groundswell Health, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 87th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, Tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith. <laughs>